This is Africa Digest. Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. You are listening to Channel Africa, the African Perspective, broadcasting from Johannesburg. We are on the frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31 meter band to Southern Africa and on Channel 802 on the DSTV audio bouquet. I'm Tracy Bumgard driving the show with Jualani Tulo, Wusani Matibula and Mosibudi Makura. Your top stories on Africa Digest this hour. South Sudan President Silva Keat has sacked the chief of the country's national army and South Africa marred by violent service delivery protests. But first, the news with Jualani. Thank you, Tracy. Good afternoon. Some top Boko Haram leaders are on trial following the recent release of 84 missing Chibok schoolgirls three years after being held captive by the militant group. It's also reported that the militants were released in exchange for the girls. Deputy Director of News at Voice of Nigeria, Ben Shamang. It's ready to bend down. In fact, I want to say that Al-Banawi has, uh, is in the net of the securities in Nigeria. As I'm talking to you, he's on trial in Abuja here. He's been captured alive. He was captured in central part of Nigeria, in Lokoja area. The leader of Mozambique's Renamo opposition party, Afonso Tlakama, says he is willing to put his differences with President Felipe Nyusi's government aside in an effort to build a southern African country. At a press briefing in the capital Maputo, Tlakama explained his decision to extend the ceasefire indefinitely. He also said Renamo's demand to appoint provincial governors is no longer a priority, defending the election of the leaders in the general elections to be held in 2019. Bright Sonjera reports from Mozambique. Afonso Jagama said that uh, people must forget what has happened uh, during the... He was naming like a, a war uh, from 2013 up to December uh, last year. So this was uh, to him, he said that it was a war against each other. So they said that the people who were uh, dying were not uh, the people uh, of uh, the part of Renamo or whether uh, the part of uh, Frelimo, but all of them, they are uh, the, the owner of this country, uh, so that uh, uh, brothers must not fight against each other. So he said that uh, the members of Renamo must forget everything that has happened, so they have to stay, stay like a brother and sister here in Mozambique. South Sudanese security agents have arrested three Kenyans and a Somali refugee for allegedly attempting to go to Libya to join the Islamic State extremist group. Kenya police spokesperson George Kinoti says the families of the four men assisted authorities with information that led to the apprehension in South Sudan on Thursday. They were returned to Kenya on Sunday. Hundreds of young Kenyans are reportedly the largest contingent of foreign fighters in Somalia's deadly Al-Shabaab militant group. South Africa's President Jacob Zuma's lawyers have asked the opposition DA to provide to produce the very intelligence report that the DA wants Zuma to supply in a bizarre twist to the sacking of Finance Minister Pravin Gordon. DA Federal Executive Chair James Self says the President has issued a demand asking the party to produce the so-called intelligence report. The DA has asked the High Court in the capital Pretoria to force Zuma to produce a report that he used to justify his cabinet reshuffle on 
the 30th of March, South says it is nothing more than a frivolous delaying tactic on behalf of the president. And finally, the U.S. Embassy in Kenya says it has suspended approximately $21 million in assistance to Kenya's Ministry of Health amid concerns about corruption. In a statement, the agency says late last year, Kenya's security agencies started an investigation in the ministry over the alleged diversion of more than $50 million. Kenya is ranked 145 out of 176 countries in Transparency International's Index of the World's Most Corrupt Countries. For Channel Africa, I'm Cholani Chulo. Thank you, Jwalani. South Sudan President Salva Kiir has sacked Paul Malong, chief of the country's National Army, the South Sudan's People's Liberation Army, or SPLA. The sacking came short after more than 30 people were killed in Ye Town and its outskirts. Ye is located southwest of the capital, Juba, near South Sudan's border with Uganda and the Democratic Republic of Congo. James Shimanyula tells us more. As intensive and extensive ethnic fighting continues in South Sudan, President Salva Kiir has just sacked the country's army chief, General Paul Malong. A decree announced by President Kiir cited no reason for the sacking. Malong has been replaced by the Deputy Chief of the General Staff Administration and Finance General James Ajong Mawood. Malong's sacking comes at a time when South Sudan soldiers have been repeatedly accused by ordinary citizens and international human rights organizations of committing orgies of arbitrary killings rape, torture, and other obnoxious war crimes during the ongoing ethnic fighting. The sacking of General Paul Malong comes barely 12 hours after South Sudanese government troops terrorized the residents of Ye Town and its outskirts southwest of the capital Juba, killing more than 30 people and seriously wounding dozens of others. In a spasmodic voice, Jacob Makwach, one of the residents of Ye, who lost four of his relatives, summed up the orgy of killings by government soldiers. It's just a tragic moment and a sad moment for us. In fact, what is going on will never please anybody. And uh, it hurts because those who commit such atrocities are not even brought to book. A 43-year-old man who refused to disclose his name for, as he put it, my own safety, had this task description of what government soldiers did. They shot people. One is an elder. Everything has been uh, looted. Do you know they are national army? They can move. Kennedy Epasa of the African Inland Church in Yei says... The majority of people killed resided in rural areas. A passer points out that had the United Nations peacekeepers been stationed in rural areas, they would have stopped the killings. UN peacekeeping forces in South Sudan, the UNIMIS, they only consecrate in the towns. Soldiers being deployed in rural areas, killing discriminately innocent people. With the situation remaining unpredictable and tense in Yei, 
The Juba government, through deputy spokesman for the National Army Sudani People's Liberation Army SPLA, Colonel Dominic Santo, has, as he and his superior have done in the past, exonerated the government soldiers from the killings. The SPLA does not attack civilians, because even by common sense, how does SPLA move with all the military arsenal to attack civilians who have got no weapons? This is just a political campaign just to turn the damage of the SPLA before the international community. That was Colonel Dominic Santo, Deputy Spokesman for South Sudan Army. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. Well, in South Africa, violent protests over poor service delivery, the lack of housing and jobs have continued in several areas, including Laudium, Eldorado Park, Ennerdale and Orange Farm in Gauteng. Residents vowed to continue to protest until Gauteng Human Settlements MEC Paul Merchatile and Johannesburg Mayor Herman Mashaba came to the area to listen to their grievances. For an analysis of these protests, here is Malose Langa, a lecturer in the School of Community and Human Development at the University of the Witwatersrand. Obviously, this protest, I mean, are not new. And if you look at our statistics, far as like, you know, 2008, is where we had like an increase of service delivery related, like no protest. And I mean, we, we have done a research in 2008, 2009, 2010, and also in 20, 2013 in different like no communities. And when you look at the script, it may be in Lodium today, it may be Eldorado Park, and tomorrow it will be another community, but the script is all the same. The same in a sense that people feel that they raise, like, you know, service-related delivery issues. And fundamentally, I guess the big question here that we need to ask is that is the local government, like, no system working in South Africa or not? Because how things ought to work is that people need to go to their local councillors and raise like no concerns and local councillors take the issue to the municipality and the municipality as the way we have like in our electoral like no system until they reach like no relevant like no offices. So our research clearly shows that the local government like no system is dysfunctional. Dysfunctional in a sense that people do not follow due processes where they go to councillors. But there are also instances where they go to councillors and they raise all those like no concerns. And what tends to happen, because believe me, if you go to Eldorado Park and you listen to the residents there, you're more likely to find that they have followed due processes. But when people follow due processes, what tends to happen, nothing like that happens. It's only now when people turn like no violent and to a point where people have this view that the violence is the only language that government knows. And in fact, it has worked in many communities because you and I, would not have in this conversation if yeah. people have not gone to the street. Mm. And I think we, we definitely need to change that script, but not only from the residents, but also from the government. Mm. Because in other communities where it was very sad, people adduced letters that they've written to relevant like in offices. They went far as reporting some of the cases to the public protector and nothing like that happened. So why do we only respond when people take to the streets and no. that's the question that we need to answer and i always have a problem which is going to be my last point to give you an opportunity mm. is that when this like when this incident like not happen what has to happen in the media is the criminalization of 
the protest and then the issues at the hand unfortunately disappear because what we are left with is that so many shops are looted yes of course shops get looted in the process of like some of this like no protest but you must not then criminalize the whole issue because what tends to happen is that you must send the police and police must arrest like no suspect and in fact i've read the newspapers like no this morning in all of them they talk about how many shops were looted and which is true and how many people were arrested but not issues that the residents have raised. I think um, it is definitely um, a, a problematic uh, um, issue and uh, as you rightfully highlighted that the protests do become violent because um, it seems to be the only way that people know how to get the attention of government because as you've also mentioned it has worked in various other parts of the country. Now you are a, a co-author of a book titled The Smoke That Calls. Tell us a little bit about that book and what the motivation behind it was and uh, does the book uh, offer any any recommendations um, to uh, some of these problems that we've highlighted? Basically, even when we look at the title, I mean, that was a quote from one of the, like, you know, uh, respondents. And he said, you will see by the smoke that we call in them. Basically, that is that we have followed due processes and everything, and no one has responded to us. So they will see by the smoke, us like no burning, and then they will come and then we'll have a conversation with them. So basically what we said, and you've seen it in over the weekend when Jacob Zuma, the president, went to Vuyan, but never addressed the residents. Yes, I understand the politics like around that. I mean, to say the meeting was not representative and everything. But for me, politically, I don't think it was a wise move to first make the promise that I'm coming and then not pitch up. Because that's the issue that many residents like you know, complain about. So, so for me, it is very basic. What we need to do is to go at a grassroots level and listen to people. People want to be heard. And if we listen to them, we don't listen to them as a PR like, you know, exercise. We demonstrate to a point if really the municipality does not have money. Let's go at that level. Explain the budget to these residents to say, as a municipality, this is how much we have. And this is how much we have allocated for one, two, three. This is what we plan to do and everything. Because what people tend to hear is that so much money has disappeared, so much money has disappeared. So there is a view that there's so much money lying around, but this money gets Mm -hmm. stolen by those with political connections. Mm. So simply, the solution, let's go to the grassroots level and explain to people, hear them out, and that will solve all this like no problem. We have great news for you. Channel Africa has gone mobile. If you have a cell phone, you can now download the mobile app for Android. You can get it on Google Play. Get the latest news from Africa. Get the Channel Africa app. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspectives. Good news for listeners in America. You can now listen to Channel Africa by phoning 605-47-1711. So, if you're a Channel Africa listener in America, simply dial 605-47-1711. Channel Africa, giving you the African perspective.
We have great news for you. Channel Africa has gone mobile. If you have a cell phone, you can now download the mobile app for Android. You can get it on Google Play. Get the latest news from Africa. Get the Channel Africa app. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspectives. South African Judge Bashir Vali says there's no merit to President Jacob Zuma's argument that the main opposition party, the Democratic Alliance, was not entitled to records of why he fired former Finance Minister Pravin Godan. Vali today provided reasons for his decision in the so-called Zuma reshuffle saga. Last week, the court ruled that President Jacob Zuma hand over records explaining reasons why he reshuffled his cabinet on March 30th. The judge gave the president five days to comply with the ruling. The Democratic Alliance filed an urgent application with the court on April 24th. More from legal expert Ulrich Rue. Yes, definitely. I think, you know, if one has consideration to, you know, the enormity of the decision taken by the president to act as the finance minister and the effect that it has on society at large, then it is definitely a decision to which the society is privy to know why he made that decision. You know, the president of a country has a constitutional duty at all times when he's acting to act in the best interest of the country. And he's got proper grounds to have asked the Minister of Finance. Then why not be transparent about it and why not inform society and the country at large as to why he did it and take the country into your confidence and give us the reasons and if there's mm. nothing sinister about the reasons then I, then I don't see any problem with that. So mm. I think it was a judgment that was expected by the court and I think that it sets a good precedent going forward. Now is this uh, order for the President uh, Zuma binding? Is he bound to act on it? Yes, definitely. It's an order handed down by the High Court of South Africa. Whether you're the President of South Africa or just a normal judge, so on the street, you are bound by an order that is handed down by the High Court. So um, definitely he's bound by it, and he must supply the reasons for his decision within five days. Mm, is he able to appeal this order? Yes, theoretically he would be able to, given that he, he only received the reasons for Judge Valley's decision yesterday. I do expect that they will seek an extension of the time period, but if he does want to appeal it, he'll have to show proper ground to why he's appealing. And he'll also have to demonstrate to the court that a higher court, in this instance, it will be the Supreme Court of Appeal, would come to a different conclusion if faced with the same fact. We certainly haven't seen an application for leave to appeal launched yet. And if he does, so it'll have to be before the five days expire. Some people have said that this ruling will definitely set precedence for the judiciary to interfere with the executive. Do you share these sentiments? No, not at all. I think the fact that distinguishes this decision and the decision taken by the judiciary from the executive is that the duties of the president are enshrined in our constitution and the court is there to ensure that our laws are enforced. Now the constitution is a law and it's an act and it must be enforced by the courts. So the courts merely enforced the duty upon the president in terms of the constitution. 
it is not an infringement upon the separation of powers doctrine because the order made by the court is found in our constitution. At last, following a harrowing manner in which they were forcibly taken or abducted, as some analysts would say, about 84 missing Chibok girls were recently released. That is three years after being kept captive against their will by the militant Islamic Boko Haram group from a school in Chibok in Borno State, Nigeria. According to the Nigerian government, the girls were released after extensive negotiations with the militant Islamic group. A total of 276 girls were kidnapped by this militant group on the 14th of April 2014. About 21 of those girls managed to escape from capture in October the same year. Unfortunately, the whereabouts of 200 other missing girls remains a mystery. While many Nigerians are happy about the release and some top Boko Haram leaders are on trial, there are also rumours that some were released in an agreement for the released girls. To tell us more, here's Dan Shimang, Deputy Director of News Voice of Nigeria, and Esther Ikubaje, a campaigner at Amnesty International's Nigeria office. Many Nigerians are happy that uh, these girls have uh, been released, and of course they are being uh, handled by the authorities. First of all, uh, they have to go some uh, medical checkups. And thereafter, you begin to, ma- to manage them psychologically. These are people who have been uh, m- mobile in nature, moving from one forest to mm-hmm. another, from one vegetation to another, from caves to mountains and all that stuff. Uh, but having said so, um, uh, we have also realized, as are told unto us by negotiators, that some of the girls refuse to follow this 82 being released. Uh, uh, citing the fact that uh, they are already used uh, to, uh, to to those who are their captors. Uh, so whether that is true, we don't know. But on the side of government, government says uh, it's ready to bend down. In fact, I want to say that Al-Banawi has, uh, is in the net of the securities in Nigeria. As I'm talking to you, he's on trial in Abuja here. He's been captured alive. He was captured in central part of Nigeria, in Lokoja area. And, of course, in his own uh, model of uh, operation, he was always, uh, in fact, uh, kidnapping uh, people, especially foreigners, for ransom. That was always his own looking for money and all that. So they fell apart with uh, the main Simboko Haram, led by Abubakar Shakao, who is a very hardliner. He doesn't mind kidnapping, I mean killing, beheading people mm-hmm. in the name of, uh, of, uh, of religion and you see him holding some uh, sheets of paper, uh, insisting that the copy of the Koran. But people are, are in, in fact, seeing him as a man who really is insane. But again, if you look at it, the way some of the people who have uh, run away from uh, the, the, the camp, I want to recall that uh, one Boko Haram commander actually escaped with one of these girls, uh, these Boko Chibok girls, and, uh, and reported himself with the girl uh, to the military. And, of course, uh, they were accepted, and he's very, very instrumental as to revealing uh, what is happening and where things are happening. And that is why it's also very easy for the military to also route uh, them uh, here and there. Before now, you could see that uh, people were actually claiming or hiding Boko Haram or indeed fearing to, to say where they are. But today, uh, they are in this area. Uh, and uh, what you call Kamzero in... Um, in 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 uh, Sambisa Forest, 
the military invaded that and actually captured them, got their insignia of office, their flags, their Korans, their, uh, just call it. And uh, so the military has turned that place into a training camp, uh, camp and that is where they are. Again, when you're looking up at uh, feeding these people, it's not easy for one man or a certain group to keep moving uh, some girls involuntarily. The girls are not moving voluntarily. Uh, so it's not easy managing them. It's not mm. easy feeding them. Mm. So at the point, Boko Haram 2 is running short of breath. When I say breath, in terms of foodstuff, in terms of logistics, because there's no food for them to ferry them here and there, in terms of where to hide them. Uh, so it's a, a whole lot of problems, and that is why today you could see that they, they, they are actually uh, being captured easily. 80 girls have been released. Do we know the total number of the girls that have been released since 2014 and what more needs to be done? Because the total number of the girls initially was around 276 girls, so more needs to be done, Esther. A little bit of it is kicking out. You know, mm-hmm. it's been shrouded in a lot of secrecy, mm-hmm. I guess, to ensure that, you know, the process is not compromised. I mean, there are interlocutors that both sides um, respect and um, uh, and we've seen how the, their work has led to um, the, the government might have exchanged between two to five um, top Boko Haram commanders mm-hmm. in exchange for the girls. Um, this is of concern uh, because, uh, like you noted, the conflict is ongoing. It means that Boko Haram has been, um, the, it's, it's the, the, the ranks of Boko Haram has been, um, 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 you know, increased by at least five more people or, or two, between two and five more people. That is of concern. Esther Ukubaji, a campaigner at Amnesty International's Nigeria office, and you also heard from Dan Shemang, the Deputy Director of News Voice of Nigeria, speaking to Benjamin Moshatama. Well, the Nelson Mandela Foundation today launched this year's Nelson Mandela International Day initiative in Johannesburg, South Africa. Nelson Mandela International Day is commemorated the lifetime and service of Nelson Mandela, the, the Sorry, which he gave to South Africa and the world. It was launched on his birthday on 18 July in 2009 via a unanimous decision by the United Nations General Assembly. Mandela Day calls on South Africans every day to make a world, the world a better place, making every day and Mandela Day celebrates Madiba's life and legacy in a sustainable way that will bring about enduring change. To talk to us more on this, we're joined on the line by trustee of the Nelson Mandela Foundation, Dr. Mampela Rampele. Good evening. Good evening, madam. Well, why is the focus on this year's Mandela Day initiative on action against poverty? We have to remember that Mandela was a revolutionary whose focus was on fighting for political change so we could have a more just society. And it was at his inauguration in 1994 on the 10th of May that he said, now that we've got political settlement, the time for healing is now. And the healing is not just healing the divisions between black and white, but also between those who are rich and those who are poor, dealing with social injustice. And so we are, in fact, carrying on the mandate that Mandela took on upon his inauguration as president to complete the journey of freedom. The long walk to freedom had to include 
economic and social freedom, which poverty is making impossible for a whole number of, in fact, for the majority of South Africans today. Now, have people over the years responded to the various Mandela Day initiatives? Absolutely. It has grown into a global movement that is touching the lives of people across the globe because of the fact that even the UN has made it into a day that is recognized as a UN event that has internationalized it. But for us here in South Africa, today it was wonderful to see on Capitol Hill people from across all walks of life, those who are dealing with the issues of education, dealing with issues of hunger and, and, and other signs of poverty, coming together. Hello? Hi, yes, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Right. Coming together to pledge to do more every day to uproot poverty from our society. Now, what other activities are planned that will run alongside this initiative? Well, we are, in fact, launching it now in preparation for uh, July the 18th. And by that time, what we want to do is to build a momentum. Those who are doing whatever they are doing in the private sector, in the public sector, or in, in civil society, what we want to see is a bigger momentum. That it is not good enough as the private sector to just say, we are doing CSI. No, we have to do more to change the structure of our economy in in ways that people can make changes in their own companies, in their own communities, in their own churches, in their own schools. And above all, we need to enable young South Africans to understand what it means to be a citizen of this beautiful South Africa and citizens of a constitutional democracy. And one of the points we want to emphasize is that more and more people must learn about the values that we assumed, we embraced as a democracy, and one of them is equality. For as long as some people are poor and others are rich, we are failing to meet our obligations to live in a society where citizens are equal. Thank you very much, Dr. Mampela Rampele. Thank you. And thank you to your listeners. Well, that was Dr. Mampela Rampele, trustee of the Nelson Mandela Foundation. We now have headlines with Jolani Tulo. Thank you, Tracy. Making headlines. South Africa's President Jacob Zuma has applied for leave to appeal a High Court ruling, ordering him to give to provide reasons rather why he fired former Finance Minister Pravin Gordon. South Sudanese security agents have arrested three Kenyans and a Somali refugee for allegedly attempting to go to Libya to join the Islamic extremist group. And finally, public consultations have started in Namibia towards a declaration of a national genocide remembrance day. For Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo.
The month of May is observed as Lupus Awareness Month. The initiative aims to increase public understanding of what the sufferers of the disease say is a cruel and mysterious illness that ravages different parts of the body. More than 5 million people around the world have lupus. In our weekly look at health issues, we focus attention on the disease with Sibongile Komati, founder of the Lupus Foundation South Africa. Lupus is an autoimmune disease where the body's immune system becomes overactive and starts attacking the body's own organs, meaning that if you've got guards and army, the army gets confused and doesn't realize that it's killing its own members. That's the simplest that I can explain. When and how did you find out you had lupus? I was diagnosed with lupus nine years ago. I had pulmonary embolus, but at the time I was not aware what I had. Prior to that, I had been suffering from migraines, joint pain, nosebleeds, a lot of clotting. Nine years ago, I lost a friend. Prior to that, I had fallen, and I was on a cast for about three months. So being inactive, I gained a little bit of weight, and I thought the chest pain that I was feeling was because maybe I'm a bit heavy, and the fatigue was excessive. So I had all those symptoms over time, and then at that particular time, they all came together. And for me, it became a worrisome time because here I am, I thought I was healthy, but then it became very difficult for me to cope at work because then I would be at work and then all of a sudden I'd be so tired and eventually turn darker and end up at casualties in one of the hospitals. And then two months after my friend passed away, the casualty doctor said to me, I'm depressed because of the history that she was living at that time. I believed that I was depressed because I had lost my friend. When the chest pain was not going away, I decided to go and see a cardiologist because I thought maybe there's something wrong with my, my heart. And when I got to the cardiologist with the symptoms that she's getting, she wants to exclude lupus. And the results came back and I was positive for lupus. And I was in ICU for a while and in hospital for a long time. And after that, I was in a wheelchair and I had to learn to walk again and I had to you know, I had an oxygen tank because I couldn't live on my own because my lungs were so badly damaged. Which parts of the body can it affect and what are the symptoms? Lupus doesn't choose. It can attack anything from the top of your head to the bottom of your soul. We find that most people that are diagnosed are female. And from the ages of 14 to 44, those are the ages that most people are diagnosed at. We've got two types of lupus, actually. We have systemic lupus erythematosus, which is SLE. We've got discoid lupus erythematosus, which is also called as in short DLE. And then we have drug-induced lupus and neonatal lupus. With having all those, the symptoms you can imagine are very. So we can have migraines, you can have malarash, if you've got discoid. You can get arthralgia, which is joint pain, muscle pain, myalgia and fatigue, inflammation of the heart, lungs, the brain can be affected by it. You can have arthritis. So it is very diverse in really being able to diagnose. I'm more interested in drug-induced lupus. Do we know which drugs can cause this disease? Not specifically. You know, people may have been taking prescription drugs. They could be taking drugs for any other illness. 
and then you present with symptoms. What do you think the biggest misconception about lupus is? The misconceptions that are there is that people that have lupus are labeled as lazy. They are labeled as people that are trying to use a fancier way to the illness that they have. People have said, I'm HIV positive and I'm camouflaging it with an illness that's not known. Other people are diagnosed with cancer, whereas it is lupus. Other people have both cancer and lupus, and other people will have lupus and HIV. So it's quite diverse, and I think that is the problem that we have of not having enough money put into it because there's just too much information that needs to be gathered to be able to make informed decisions. Internationally, there's a lot of research that is being done. In Africa or in South Africa, per se, there's nothing. And what advice, Bongile, would you give others also battling lupus? The only way to beat lupus come to a phase where you say, I've got this illness, I have to face it head on. I basically tell my body that if I die, lupus then will have failed because it will not have self-contact because both of us die. But what I would tell the listeners is that know your body, get to know and understand your body. If you feel tired and you need to diagnose with lupus, take time out and take care of your body. Live a healthier lifestyle. Try to exercise. Try to eat healthy. It's all the normal things that anyone can do. Now, you founded the Lupus Foundation South Africa. Tell us about the kind of work you do and how can people get involved? The kind of work that we're doing as a foundation is creating awareness. The creation of awareness for me is the most important thing because it's not going to be only with people that to be aware of lupus. It's going to be doctors, it's going to be nurses, it's going to be the government, because we need support from the government to have access to hospitals and clinics. We need corporates to help us, because I had to stop working because my boss didn't understand what I was going through. We need to go and talk to employers so that they understand that if they have an employee that has lupus, how to treat them. So it's a matter of just everyone giving us a chance to come and talk to them and supporting us. The other thing that we do is support those that are affected by lupus, either the family or the person that has been diagnosed with lupus. But as we go further, we're going to need more people that are going to help us with teaching doctors, teaching nurses, teaching the communities about lupus. That's Sibongile Komati, founder of the Lupus Foundation South Africa, speaking to Elizabeth Ledicha. Nigeria has been gripped by the largest meningitis sea outbreak in nine years. About six months into the epidemic, the West African nation is still battling to curb the outbreak in seven states. The disease has so far claimed the lives of over 800 people and infected thousands others. For an update on the situation, we joined on the line by Heika Heisman, Medical Coordinator for the International Medical Humanitarian Agency, Doctors Without Borders, or MSF for Nigeria. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Tracy. How are you? I'm good, and you? How serious and severe is this outbreak? Uh, yes, this outbreak uh, is ongoing since uh, early this year. And uh, so far, we have uh, reports of uh, uh, around 10,000 
cases uh, with 9% uh, mortality. So um, at the moment, we see a decline uh, after the recent uh, uh, vaccinations that have been done, uh, but we still see, see cases coming in. Now, which areas have been hardest hit? Uh, the northwest of uh, Nigeria um, uh, has been the hardest hit, and, and then we're talking about Sokoto State, Samfara State, uh, bordering uh, Niger and, uh, and Benin. So is the occurrence of meningitis C at this time of the year something strange in Nigeria? Well, every year we see uh, meningitis. Uh, it's, uh, but not in this, uh, this uh, amount uh, of, of uh, cases. And uh, this year we see uh, a type of meningitis that we have not seen uh, before, uh, and that's the meningitis uh, type T. Um, so, yeah, this is a new, new strain for, uh, for this area. Uh, the other years we have seen meningitis and also vaccination campaigns have been done, uh, but not for this type. So now there were reports earlier this year of a major shortfall in vaccines. Are you aware of such reports and is this still the case? Well, the, the vaccines, uh, the, the world's global um, availability of vaccines uh, against meningitis is, um, uh, is limited. Uh, so also for uh, Nigeria, uh, we were only able to uh, obtain a limited amount of uh, vaccine. So we could not do a mass campaign that would have meant that we would have um, um, vaccinated millions of people. So what we have done now is only to vaccinate the areas with the highest uh, number of cases. Uh, of course, this means that you have to have a very good coverage um, to contain the outbreak, uh, or else it can also spread to areas where you have not seen uh, meningitis yet. How dangerous is this disease, and what are the chances of survival when a person is diagnosed early and adequate treatment begins? Yeah, it's, it's very essential that the diagnosis is made early. And uh, looking at the northwest of uh, Nigeria, uh, the primary health care provision uh, and the accessibility to primary health care is, is quite poor. Um, so um, early detection is very important. And then a short course of five days with antibiotica uh, should, should do it. Um, but yeah, we, we see a lot of late presentations. Uh, people are um, uh, unaware of of the signs and symptoms, or come uh, and then come too late to our facility. So, if you treat early, uh, the survival um, uh, is, is is high. Uh, but yeah, at the moment we see still uh, a mortality of of six percent uh, to nine percent. So that's quite high. But that's mostly due to late presentation. Now, what is MSF doing to remedy the situation, and do you feel that you're racing against time to control the outbreak? Uh, at the moment, we have in a Sokoto town uh, a treatment center of 100 beds, where we have treated uh, uh, over a thousand patients uh, since um, a couple of weeks. 
Uh, in Samfara State, we uh, have surveillance teams who do uh, active case finding, uh, but also management uh, of cases. Uh, so they move from one uh, health center to another to support the national staff uh, of Nigeria uh, in doing proper diagnosing and setting up. That was Heike Heisman, Medical Coordinator for Doctors Without Borders or MSF for Nigeria. Good news for listeners in America. You can now listen to Channel Africa by phoning 605-47-1711. So, if you're a Channel Africa listener in America, simply dial... 605-47-1711 Channel Africa, giving you the African perspective. Well, today is Wednesday, May 10th, the 130th day of 2017. There are 235 days left in the year. Today in 1994, Nelson Mandela took the oath of office in Pretoria to become South Africa's first black president. Today in 1933, the Nazis staged massive public book burnings in Germany. And in 1940, during World War II, German forces began invading the Netherlands, Luxembourg, Belgium and France. The same day, British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain resigned and Winston Churchill formed a new government. And now with our economic updates, here is Amanda Machaka. Thank you, Tracy. Good evening. South Africa's Parliament Standing Committee on Public Accounts has expressed its shock over a PricewaterhouseCoopers report regarding the supply of coal to power utility ESCOM by Gupta-owned company Itageta. The report has found that ESCOM deviated from supply chain procedures. Treasurer official Soli Chitangano says there was no declaration of interest from those involved and that the coal management uh, quality report was not signed. Africa's chief executive officers are confident that the outlook for business on the continent remains positive, notwithstanding the unpredictable economic and socio-political climate. This is according to the PricewaterhouseCoopers Africa Business Agenda report, which shows that 85% of African CEOs are confident in their own company's prospects for revenue growth over the next 12 months. PricewaterhouseCoopers Southern Africa's CEO Dion Shango explains. The Africa Business Agenda is a report that allows us to read the pulse of leaders of businesses and large organizations on the African continent by virtue of surveys and interviews conducted with 80 CEOs based on the African continent. It gives us their views of the realities and rewards of doing business on the African continent within the broader context of a slow um, growth environment internationally. 
Kenya's government is seeking proposals to curb climbing food prices. The country's parliament is looking to its members to agree to a supplementary budget which will allow the government to spend or raise extra funds outside of the annual budget cycle. The issue is, however, becoming a political liability for President Uhuru Kenyatta as he seeks a second term in August elections. Selena Dobong reports. Kenyatta is running against veteran opposition leader Raila Odinga, who is stoking widespread anger over rising food prices. Even though the price jumps are partly blamed on a regional drought, Odinga has accused Kenyatta for raising taxes and failing to boost food production. Recently, the government announced plans to import approximately 100,000 tons of sugar over the next three weeks to make up for a shortage caused by the drought. According to Kenya National Bureau of Statistics, the average price of one kilogram of sugar rose 21.61% year-on-year last month. The government expects inflation to remain above target. It is likely that ordinary citizens in Kenya will continue paying more for a basket of food. South Africa and Tanzania are set to elevate their relations to a higher level when President Jacob Zuma and his Tanzanian counterpart John Makufuli meet on Thursday. Zuma will undertake a two-day state visit to the Southern African country this Wednesday. He will be accompanied by at least six cabinet ministers and dozens of local business people. The two presidents will sign a binational commission and trade and investment relations between the two countries will be monitored. Binational Commission is the highest level of commitment of heads of states to deal with issues political, economic, security and development. The Binational Commission is led by heads of states, so it gives them an opportunity to meet annually and as they meet, they also have an opportunity to make a reflection on global politics geopolitics, global economic development, but also talk about our own neighborhood in the continent, our sub-region of SADC, but also focus on tangible outcomes. PEP has started gas production from two fields in its West Nile Delta development off Egypt's coast, the second of seven projects the oil and gas company plans to launch this year. The Taurus and Libra fields, commissioned eight months ahead of schedule and under budget, are currently producing 700 million standard cubic feet of gas a day to the Egyptian national gas grid. The West Nile Delta development includes five offshore gas fields, which are planned to have in 2019 a combined production of up to almost 1.5 billion cubic feet a day, equivalent to about 30% of Egypt's current gas production. In our financial indicators, the U.S. dollar is trading at 13.45 South African rand, at 10.42 Botswana Pula and 9.16 Zambian Kwacha. It's 0.77 to the British pound and 0.91 to the euro. In commodities, gold is at $1,221 and platinum at $909 an ounce. The price of print crude oil is at $50.10 a barrel. That's the latest business news. Time now for the latest sports update with Mosibodi Makuda.
Good evening, sports fans. I am Musibu Dimakura with the latest sports news at the Sawam. And starting off with football news, Atletico Madrid have all to do against city rivals Real Madrid on what is sure to be an emotional evening at the Vincente Calderon and what will be the last European tie at the stadium that has been their home since 1966. Diego Simone's Atletico are attempting to win a European tie against their neighbours at the fifth time of asking. Cristiano Ronaldo's first leg um, hat-trick that gave the holders a 3-0 win at the Santiago Bernabeu makes that an unlikely prospect. Real Madrid have ended Atletico's Champions League hopes in each of the last three seasons, including dramatic victories in the finals back in um, 2014 as well as 2016. This is a fifth European meeting for Real Madrid and Atletico, all in the European Cup, with Madrid having won all four previous ties. World Soccer Governing Body FIFA has refused to discuss a report by Tokyo Sekhwale, the head of the Israel-Palestine Monitoring Committee, on resolving the contentious issue of six Israeli soccer teams from illegal settlements in the occupied West Bank playing illegally on Palestine territory. The Palestine Football Association has been pushing for sanctions against the Israeli settlement teams as their presence on Palestinian land is in violation of FIFA's statute that prohibits nations from administering football or basing their teams on territories belonging to another nation. Sari Bashi is the Israeli and Palestine Advocacy Director. The West Bank is part of the territory of the Palestinian Football Association. The Israel Football Association should not be playing outside of Israel. And FIFA's statutes also require it to respect human rights. Those activities take place on land that... FIFA statutes also require it to respect human rights. Fielding games in unlawful settlements contributes to serious human rights abuses. One of the settlement fields is located on land that is privately owned by a Palestinian family. That Palestinian family has not been able to access their land for 30 years. They were not compensated. They did not give permission for FIFA to, FIFA to conduct activities on their land. On to rugby news, Springbok coach Alistair Kotsia is not too concerned after his team was drawn in the same pool as the world champions New Zealand for the 2019 Rugby World Cup in Japan. The Springboks were drawn in pool B for the 20. 2019 showpiece along with the All Blacks, Italy and two yet-to-be-determined nations. Kotsia attended the draw in Koyoto, Japan along with representatives from the other 11 qualified teams and said afterwards that he was satisfied with the pool allocation. The box and the All Blacks have all clashed four times in Rugby World Cups before with two victories each. South Africa won the final back in 1995 and the third place playoff match back in 1999 while New Zealand came out tops in the quarterfinals back in 2003 and the semifinals in 2015. On to Bolche Tennis News, South African Bolche Tennis aces Lucas Sitole as well as Hotato Monjani are all well prepared to do battle for the quads and the women's titles respectively at the Japan Open which begins next week Tuesday. The Japan Open and International Tennis Federation event part of the Bolche Tennis Tour and the third Super Series event of the year will see the world's best players all looking to push for points in the six-day tournament. Monjani is in camp and she has been hard at work. My preparation has been going well 
and now, uh, yeah, I'm just excited that I'm going back into into the circuit and excited to be competing again. And finally, in golf news, big-hitting American Chad Pfeiffer is primed to start his title defense in the Canon SA Disabled Golf Open at King David Morbray Golf Club from the 15th to the 18th of May. Pfeiffer says he's thrilled to be coming back to the golf course. I'm super excited to be coming back. You guys did such an incredible job. I know they're going to do an amazing job this year, so very excited to be coming back. You know, it's going to be held down at King David Mowbray Golf Club down in Cape Town. So I'm super, super thrilled to be coming down to check out that part of the country. And I know it's going to be a little different than last year playing down at, at uh, Altitude. Well, those are your sports news at the Sawa. Stay tuned to Channel Africa for more news from an African perspective. This is Africa Digest. Well, recapping the top stories on Africa Digest this hour, South Sudanese President Salva Kiir sacked the chief of the country's national army and South African is marred by violent service delivery protests. That wraps up Africa Digest for today. From myself, Tracy Bomgard, producer Lebo Moswe, technical producer Rev, Rev Abraham and the rest of the Africa Digest team. Thank you for listening. For comments on the show, send us an email to info at channelafrica.co.za or you can send an SMS to plus two seven eight two double three two five nine zero five. And taking us to the top of the hour is Freshly Ground with Buttercup. Buttercup While I was walking one day And she was such a pretty little buttercup I saw her walking one day I said, hey, I'm such a pretty little buttercup I'd like to take you away But oh, you're such a pretty little buttercup I don't believe that you would stay Oh no way 